0: This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org.
1: Why, good afternoon and welcome to class. We're going to have a good class. I know you'll enjoy it. Now, we have many people trying to come in the door and I'm wondering if we have any empty seats. If there's an empty seat near you, would you raise your hand? Okay, those of you at the door, you'll see these hands raised. We've got some empty seats here, so keep coming in and come over to my right, your left. Where you see hands up, we have empty seats. Couple empty seats in the center here, and so we will proceed with others coming in now. This is the third in our series of Three classes on making friends for eternity. We'll review what we did in the first two classes, then have, pr- have prayer, and launch right into this particular class. We, in our first class, looked at the postmodern mind, and we said, "How can we witness in the 21st century to people at times who are who have very little." background of the Bible, very little background of God's Word. And we talked about the importance of relationships. That the age that we live in is an age of technology. iPhone, iPad, texting. And you remember I used the illustration that you go into a restaurant and two people are sitting across from one another eating, but they're texting. That lack of human connectedness. The human heart desires relationship. First you make a friend, then you make a Christian friend, then you make a Seventh-day Adventist Christian friend. You don't win your enemies to Christ. Now, sometimes you may be put in a very difficult situation. I was studying the Bible with a woman and her daughter. Her daughter was about 21 years old, and I began to hold evangelistic meetings in that city, and mother and daughter came. They were coming to the meetings on a regular basis. They accepted Christ, accepted the message of the Second Coming, and accepted the Sabbath. The mother had to go out of town for about a week, and she had every anticipation that her daughter would continue to come to the meetings. Mom said, I'm going away, but my daughter will come to the meetings, get the notes, and uh, I'll see you when I get back in a week. I thought, good news. I didn't want the lady to miss a week of meetings, but was glad her her daughter was going to come. Night after the mother left, daughter didn't come. Two nights later, daughter didn't come. Three nights later, daughter did, didn't come. It was about the middle of the week. I said, I'd better go visit the daughter. When I went to the mother's house to knock on the door, nobody answered. And I kind of just by the corner of my eye noticed through the window that a guy was there. And the girl finally came to the door and sheepishly she said to me, Pastor Finley, I never thought you'd come to my house. Well, immediately I knew what was going on. This guy was living at the house while the mother was out there. So, the girl shut the door behind her and came out on the porch. And we began to talk a little bit and um, I took a wild stab in the dark. And I said to the young lady, I said, you know, there are some times that we might find ourselves in situations that are quite embarrassing and find ourselves in situations where we've compromised our moral integrity. And I said, you know, if you ever find yourself in a situation like that, know that God has the power to forgive you and deliver you. And then just offhandedly I said, in fact, any guy that would come over here and stay with you during a week that your mother was gone isn't worth having anyway. The guy was huge and he heard me. And he came out around onto the porch and he said, He was just about ready to say something, and I knew I had to speak first. I said, I am so glad to meet you. I am just so delighted to meet you. I was hoping that when you were hiding in there, you'd come out. I want to tell you just what I said about you. I mean, I wasn't fooling around. I said, I was telling her that if you are a noble gentleman, which you must be, that you'd never be staying with her when her mother was gone. And we began to talk. And as we talked, I took another stab in the dark. You know, after you do soul winning for a while, God gives you a sixth sense. And this guy was about 15 years older than her. So I I took just, and I'll tell you, sometime the Lord gives you insight And as we were sitting there, I said to him, sir, I just, you know, I know that you probably want to do the right thing. And she, of course, wants to do the right thing. And I was just wondering, would you happen to be married? The guy dropped his head and he looked at her and he said, I am. I said, how would your wife and children feel about this current relationship? He eventually said, you know, pastor, I've made some mistakes. And the Lord opened up that whole opportunity. He left. She came back to the meetings. Amen. You build relationships. You do everything you can to reach out to people, but you trust God for wisdom. You trust God for wisdom. Here's the reason I love soul winning so much. You know that you cannot achieve very much unless God gives you divine wisdom you need divine wisdom see that's why the brightest minds God is leading into soul winning that's why our most intelligent youth God leads into soul winning. soul winning is the highest of all sciences you may tax your mind with chemistry you may tax your mind with biology you may tax your mind with math but to know the human mind to know human nature, to be able to work with the the delicate surgery of the soul, to delicately work with what's going on in a person's mind and help them make eternal decisions for Christ. So first, we develop relationships. Second, we begin to share God's word. And thirdly, we try to understand how human beings think so that we can work with God in the... Delicate surgery of the soul and working in the mind. Now, in this class, I'm gonna share with you some basic principles of how people think and understanding the thinking process of human beings because just like there are laws of anatomy and physiology and those laws are universal. Now, for a principle to be universal, it must be able to be applied everywhere. So, I wanna talk to you about eternal universal principles. They can be applied anywhere. It's kind of like this. There are certain laws of the body that can be applied everywhere. They can be applied in Africa, Inter-America, and South America. If an African man smokes cigarettes and a Brazilian man smokes cigarettes, an American man smokes cigarettes, the cigarettes will only affect the American man, not the Brazilian and African man, right? Um, Will the cigarettes affect all human beings? But we have different colored skin. We speak different languages. We come from different ethnic backgrounds. But are there certain laws of anatomy and physiology that are are universal? Are there? Um, If I eat a high-fat diet and do no exercise, high-fat diet, no exercise, will I be more prone to a heart attack? But what if I'm an African? I won't be prone to a heart attack, right? What if I'm a European? I won't. But that's a universal law, isn't it? So would you agree that there are universal laws of anatomy and physiology that apply everywhere? What is the law of inertia? Can anybody define inertia? I must have at least one science student here. What's inertia? How do you define that? An object in motion stays in motion unless it's acted upon by some what? Outside force. So that means if I'm walking this way and looking that way, that's inertia, isn't it? I'm stopped by some outside force. That's a universal law. The law of gravity is a universal law. There are universal laws of the mind that if you understand them, they are powerful tools to use in soul winning. Now, you can manipulate people with them. Is electricity dangerous? So you're not gonna use it anymore, right? Electricity is dangerous but if you understand its limitations and how to use it, it has great benefit. An unconverted person who understands certain laws of anatomy and physiology and eats a good diet and jogs should have less potential of a heart attack than an unconverted person who doesn't jog and doesn't eat, right? So unconverted people can understand certain basic laws. The laws of the mind, an unconverted person that could, could understand and use wrongly. Salespeople do it all the time. But as a Christian, you and I commit our lives to Christ and we ask him to sanctify our use of these laws. So we're going to talk about the laws of the human mind. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the opportunity to share your word. Thank you that you are calling a generation of youth to be soul winners for you. We want to discover how to be more effective soul winners in this class. In Jesus' name, amen. The key law of the mind is understanding the will. Now how does the will function? What is the power of choice? The devil tries to manipulate the will. As soul winners, our work is to help people exercise their will for Christ and his kingdom. Can you think of texts in the Bible that talk about the use and the importance of the will? Let's look at some. Joshua, chapter 24, and verse 15. If you have your worksheets, You're looking at the middle of the page one under one Joshua's appeal. I'm going to look at four or five texts on the human will. So we can see from scripture the significance and importance of the will. God gave to each of his creatures the power of choice even though he knew that Adam and Eve would make the wrong choice. He gave Lucifer the power of choice in heaven. If you take away the power of choice, you take away the ability to love because love can never be forced and it never can be coerced. If you take away the ability to love, you take away the opportunity to be happy. So God has given us the power of choice, why? Because he knows without choice there can be no love and God's universe is based on love, not selfishness. If you take away the power of choice, you take away the ability to love. If you take away the ability to love, you take away the opportunity to be fully happy. God didn't want Ottomans or robots. God longed for human beings who, seeing his character, responded to his love. And so he gives to us the power of choice, the capacity to choose. Joshua 24, verse 15. Look at it there. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, next word, what is it? Choose for yourselves this day whom you'll serve, whether God your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites. But if for as me and my house, we will. What's another word for will? We what? Choose to serve the Lord. So Joshua says, God has given you the God-given power of choice. The Holy Spirit works in every heart, leading us to choose to serve Him. So when every person is born into this world, God puts eternity in their heart. And according to John chapter 1, Jesus is the light that lights every man, every woman that comes into the world. So before you and I ever do soul winning, before you and I a knock on a door, before we ever give a Bible study, God's spirit is working on that person's heart. God, The light of God's truth is in their soul, leading them to write, leading them to understand. So I can meet the most secular businessman, drinking at the bar every night, and what do I know? God loves him more than anything I can imagine. The Holy Spirit is working in his life to draw him to truth. This is an amazing truth understanding because when you knock at those doors, you know that God was there before you were there. You know that the Holy Spirit was there working in those hearts. When you see that person that's strung out on drugs, you know that they're looking for something to satisfy their soul that they have not found that person that's drinking too much alcohol is self-medicating because they're trying to find satisfaction where there is no satisfaction. So we know that there is this God shaped vacuum in every heart and that Jesus is working in every single life to bring people to a knowledge of himself and that our role as soul winners is to help them to make a choice based on that inner desire that inner conviction that God is putting in their hearts to serve Him. So our role is to help them to choose. Now, notice the texts in the Bible that talk about this importance of the will. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21. 1 Kings 18, verse 21. Notice Elijah makes a strong appeal to the prophets of Baal and to those who gather on Mount Carmel. 1 Kings 18 verse 21, and Elijah came to all the people and said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. But the people answered not a word. What was Elijah doing? He was saying, make a choice. Make a positive choice for the kingdom of God. It is never too late to begin to make positive choices. God has given to each one of us the power of choice. God is not going to knock you down, tie you up, and, uh, so that you cannot take another cigarette or another drink of alcohol. God is not going to tie you down and drag you kicking and screaming to the kingdom. Some time ago, a friend of mine told this story about his father. My friend's father and my friend was brought up on a farm, and... Uh, his father had a real terrible habit of chewing tobacco. And in those days, they'd do a lot of chewing when he lived out in the farm. So he said he'd see his dad, you know, this big wad of tobacco in the side of his cheek. His father began to take some Bible studies and was gonna become an Adventist Christian, but he's really struggling with the problem of chewing tobacco. So my friend said he'd see his father early in the morning, go out on the porch, spit the chewing tobacco into his hands, roll it up, and take it and say, I quit and throw it way out in the cornfields among the cornstalks. Then he'd say, come about noon, dad would get a craving. And he'd see his dad out among the cornstalks. What was he doing? What do you think he was doing? Looking for the tobacco, right? Now here's my question to you. If you were God, would you let him find it? <laughs> if you were God, would you let him find it? Give me the reason for your answer. Somebody says he has to choose. If he didn't find it, you think he'd get in his truck and go buy one? So if God would have hid it under a corn stalk, Is that going to be sufficient enough to get the guy off tobacco? The man would have to do what? Choose. 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 So here you see, Elijah says, how long halt you between what? Two opinions. Because you have the power of what? Choice. Let's look at Paul's appeals. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. We are looking first at the power of choice. Then we're going to look at how to reinforce choice to help people to make positive choices. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren or sisters, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies. Notice what it says, that you present. What does the phrase you present imply? You got it. What does it imply? You present your bodies as a living what? Sacrifice, holy, reasonable service. So it's, it's you present, choice. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. Philippians 2 verse 5. Again, notice the text in the Bible that emphasizes the importance of choice. Philippians 2 verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What's another word for let? Allow. Allow. Choose. Choose this mind to be in you. Again, the emphasis is on our choosing. The whole Bible ends with that glorious appeal or that choice in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17. Revelation 22 verse 17. The spirit and the bride say come. Let him who hears say, come. So the Holy Spirit is appealing to people to come. The bride of Christ is his church. It's appealing to people to come. Let him who hears, you and I who hear the message of Christ, we are to come. Let him who thirsts come, and whosoever desires, let him take the water of life, what? Freely. The King James version uses another word for rather than desire. I have new King James. The old King James is a little better than that. It says, whosoever does what? Will. Whoever wills or whoever what? Chooses. So from Genesis, where God gave Adam and Eve the choice, to Revelation, where they had a choice, God allows us to have the freedom of choice. Now there's a difference between will and willpower. The will... What is the will and what is willpower? We do not overcome by willpower. We overcome by God's power. The will, let's look at Ellen White's definition of the will. If you have your study sheet, you're looking at the middle of the page, the dark print. We'll read it together. You ready to read? I'm asking the question, what's the will? How might we define it? And let's look at Ellen White's definition of the will. It's clear and concise. So, the middle of the page, dark print, reading together. Through the right exercise of the will, an entire change may be made in the life. Let's just pause there. We need to memorize that statement. It's from Ministry of Healing 176. You're ready to memorize it? Together. Through a right exercise of the will an entire change might be made in the life. You only looked three times at the paper. You did pretty good. Hold your paper up like this, please. Okay. You can read it there, but it's a little far away. For those of us who need glasses, you're ready to go with the memory now. Through the right exercise of the will, an entire change might be made in the life. Does it say might or may? May. May. Oh, you're good. Pastor missed one word. Okay, let's go. Together, we got to get this now. Through the right exercise of the will, an entire change may be made in the life. Do you believe that? Now, what is the will? We continue to read together. By yielding up the will to Christ, we ally ourselves with divine power. We receive strength from above to hold us steadfast. A pure and noble life, a life of victory over appetite and lust is possible to everyone who will unite his weak, wavering will to the omnipotent, unwavering will of God. Now, just before that, in that same reference, which I didn't give to you, but I have it on my master sheet, it says, the tempted one needs to understand the true force of the will. This is the governing power in the nature of man, the power of decision of choice. So what is the will? The governing power. It's what governs our, the direction of our life. It's the power of will, it's the power of choice. So your will may be weak, but if you take your weak, wavering will and unite that with the all-powerful will of God, your will becomes strong. So the act of the will in overcoming is very small, but it's absolutely critical. Just like the rudder of the Queen Mary is 65 tons, and it guides, it's 85 tons, and it guides a 65,000-ton boat. So the rudder is out of proportion in its weight to the size of the boat, but it guides the boat. We do not overcome with willpower. Many a person tries to, to, says, I'll grit my teeth and I'll overcome tobacco if it kills me. In fact, it was Mark Twain that said, it's not hard to overcome smoking, I've done it a thousand times. We do not overcome by willpower because we are not strong enough to face the power of Satan. We overcome as we unite our weak will with God's will. I like to use this illustration. Suppose I'm lecturing here and I really get carried away. And I keep going and I lecture an hour. And I lecture two hours. By this time, you're either left or asleep. And uh, I lecture three hours. I'm really excited about this lecture. And it goes on and on and on. It's about 10 o'clock at night. It's like the lecture that Paul had, you know, when, at Troas when the guy fell out of the window. Uh, fell out of the window. I tell people, if, look, if you fall asleep in my meeting and fall over dead, uh, you're on your own because I don't have the power of the Apostle Paul, so you better stay awake. But anyway... So let's suppose I'm really going on, waxing eloquently, I go on and on and on, and everybody's left, there's maybe one person left, two people left, and it's, uh, it's dark, it's 10 o'clock at night, and I'm still here. And I get, I, all of a sudden, I say, man, the janitor came put on the lights, I've got to get out of here, it's dark, but I can't find my way to the door, so I, this is what I'm going to do. I get two people, and I say, okay, you two men in the front row, come on, help me here. And so what we're going to do is going to push the darkness out of the room. So I work for about an hour, and we are pushing and pushing and working, and I'm sweating. We've got to get this darkness out of here. Let's push, push. We're using every bit of energy we can. And uh, one, one, one my friend says, look, this is not a wise thing to do at all. We're not making any headway with this darkness. There's a broom over there, about three brooms in the corner. Let's sweep the darkness out. So we begin sweeping and sweeping. I sweep for another hour. By this time, I am absolutely exhausted. I mean, I tried to push the darkness out. That didn't work. Was I working pretty hard? Was I successful? Was I successful in sweeping the darkness out? So pretty soon, it's about 11 o'clock at night, and my wise wife comes along, and she says, Mark, you're still in there? I knew you preached long, but that was too long this time. And she said, I said, I'm lost in here, honey. She said, look, go back by that exit sign. There's a little panel on the wall that has a button on it. Take your finger, push that button. It'll turn the lights on. I got a wise wife, right? The act of my finger pushing the button is simpler than the hour I spent pushing the darkness out. Why does pushing the button work? Because it connects with electrical power that brings light. When I make a choice to open my heart to the power of God, it connects me with a source of power that I don't normally have. The art of soul winning is the art of helping people connect with God's power and watching the Holy Spirit divinely, miraculously transform their lives. Now. How does this work out practically? As you're studying the Bible with people, as you're sharing with people, it takes much more than simply reading the Bible. If you read the Bible, will your life be changed? You're getting to understand Pastor Philly's questions, aren't you? The questions are designed not to get answers, but to make you think. If you read the Bible, will your life be changed? Suppose I'm giving you a test, it's true or false. If you read the Bible, true or false, your life will be changed. (laughs) Well, we better go for, we're gonna have a riot, better go for a Bible text. Does the Bible answer that question? Okay, Hebrews 4, verse 2. The Bible answers that question. Did the Pharisees read the Bible? And they were converted and uh, sang Jesus' praises. Why not? They read the Bible. Okay, Hebrews 4, verse 2. Here's the text. This is the text you want. Hebrews 4, verse 2. Hebrews 4, verse 2. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as unto them. So did these people have the gospel preached to them? But the word, what's the word, what's that? The word of God, the Bible. But the word which they heard did not profit them. Did these people hear the word of God, did they? Did it profit them? Why didn't it profit them? Look and keep going, don't give me your answer, look at the Bible's answer, but it did not profit them, not being mixed with what? Not being mixed with what? Faith. So when we study the Bible with people, it is not merely reading them a long list of texts, right? It's helping them to choose to receive the promises of God's Word by what, everybody? Faith. So when I choose to receive God's Word by faith, and the Word of God enters my heart, it is life transformational. So, does the Bible change your life? Yes, if you accept it by faith. But if you simply read it to a person, and that person is arguing with you back and forth about the Word of God, if their mind is closed over it, it may not be changing them at all. So, here is then the next question. If God has given everybody the power of choice... And if our role is to help people accept the promises of God's word by faith, how does their mind work to process decisions? How does this power of choice work? How can we help people to positively make choices? Now, choices are not made in a vacuum. The will has counselors. And there are three prime counselors of the will. And if the will is going to make a positive choice, it will reference its counselors. The counselors have names. Mr. Reason, Mr. Judgment, and Mr. Conscience. So when the will begins to process for a decision, it begins to reference, and it consults with its counselors. The first counselor to consult with, typically, is Mr. Reason. The second counselor it will consult with is Mr. Judgment, the thir- Mr. Conscience. And the third, it'll counsel with Mr. Judgment. Not always in that order, but it counsels with those. What is reason? Reason raises this question. Is this decision logical? What are the facts? What are the facts? If I'm going to buy a new car To purchase the car necessitates my making a what? Choice. Before I purchase the car, what do I desire to have about the car? Facts. So I go down to the Toyota dealer. I go down to the Chevrolet dealer. I go down to the Ford dealer. And I say to myself, okay, I I wanna buy a car that is X amount of dollars. How many miles does this car have? How many miles is it expected to go? If Is it expected to last its lifespan 100,000 miles, 150,000 if I change the oil? How many miles per gallon do I get? Do I get 22, do I get 25, do I get 28? What's the resale value of the car? So what am I doing before I make my decision? What am I doing? Data gathering, right? I'm getting the facts about the decision. Bef- all intelligent decisions are based on what? adequate information. So if you want a person to make a decision for Christ, give them as much information about Jesus as you can. Give them steps to Christ to read. Study the Gospels with them. If you want a person to make a decision about the Sabbath, you're studying the Bible, say about the Sabbath, you have a series of Bible studies. Don't read one Bible text, give them a Bible lesson. Refer them to a book on the Sabbath. Leave leave literature. Leave DVDs. Because all intelligent decisions are based on what? Adequate information or facts. So we're giving people facts of a decision to make, helping them to process that in their mind. If you want people to have a better lifestyle, begin giving them facts about heart disease. Begin giving them facts about cancer. Now will people make a decision on, based on facts alone? No. Typically not. Let me give you an illustration of this. Do you, what, what habit can you think of in society that people know the facts about, it is detrimental to their health, but they keep doing it anyway? Smoking. Smoking, right? If you said to the average person, what smoking do for your health? Would that person say to you, oh man, every drag I take on this cigarette purifies my lungs. This is the most health invigorating thing I've ever done in my life. Is that what the smoker is going to say to you? No. What are they going to say? Well, I know I shouldn't be, but, right? So do they have facts about tobacco? Yes. But are the facts enough? No. So you need something more than facts. No. So. The will is the governing power, it's the power of choice. We present facts, but facts alone are not enough. In the context of Christian faith and decisions, there is a second counselor of the will, and we call that conscience. Whereas facts say, is this logical? What is the information? Conscience says, is this in harmony with God's will? Is this morally right or morally wrong? When the Apostle Paul was converted on Damascus Road, the Holy Spirit said something to him that was so incredibly remarkable that indicates a divine universal truth. Although Paul came to the point of conversion on Damascus Road, Something was happening before that time and let's look and see what it was. Acts chapter 9, verse 5. Acts 9, verse 5. This speaks directly to the, to the issue of conscience. Acts 9, verse 5. And he said, Who are you, Lord? So, you know, the voice comes says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Acts 9, verse 5. And he says, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. And Jesus says, It is hard for you to kick against either the pricks or the goads. What does that mean? It's hard for you to kick against the pricks or the goads. In other words, I am pricking your conscience. And for the last number of years, when you saw and were persecuting those Christian believer, th- believers, I was pricking your conscience. And you had this sense that what you were doing was not in harmony with God's will. So Paul made a decision on Damascus Road, but that decision was based on the fact that he had been convicted. Choice, or the will, refers back first to reason. What are the facts? But second, if you can help a person see what God's will is, and kindly, lovingly, and gently share with them that a lifestyle that they're living is not in harmony with God's will, they will begin to feel convicted in their conscience. When I'm studying the Bible with this, on the Sabbath with somebody because I understand how the mind works, I will be helping them to have conviction before they know I'm helping them have conviction. For example, let's suppose we're studying the Sabbath. And I know how their mind processes decisions. And therefore, I can cooperate with the Holy Spirit. So as I'm presenting the facts of the Sabbath, maybe we read, for example, Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. And I say to him, let's read this. Remember the Sabbath day. And I say to the person, "Say, what does God say here? He says, remember. Why, this must be very important to God. Very important to God. You know, the Ten Commandments must be very important to God if he wrote them with his own finger on tables of stone, you know. Why am I doing that? To help them have a conviction that if the Sabbath commandment is important to God and I'm not keeping the Sabbath, I'm out of harmony with God's will, therefore I feel this sense of conviction to make a change in my life. So we don't merely read a string of Bible texts, but we help people first by developing a relationship, by sharing literature with them, by sharing a tape or a DVD with them, beginning to be bonded with them. Then to begin to study God's word with them. And as we study God's word with them, we're presenting them information. We're sharing with them the fact of helping them understand that the, how to recognize the still small voice that was in within. Now here is an eternal principle as well. The more you can help people, take little steps and respond to the conviction that the Holy Spirit has given them, the more they'll ultimately take larger steps. So what we want to do is help people take little steps. If you start studying the Bible with people and start sharing with people, help them to start praying. Help them to start reading a few passages in the Bible at first. Help them to make little steps in their life to give up certain things. That prepares them later the more you deny the inner conviction of the Holy Spirit, the more you will close your mind off to the further light that God wants to give you. You know, I wasn't brought up in a Seventh-day Adventist home. I was brought up in a lovely Catholic home. And I can remember one time, and I look back at certain turning points in my life, points at which if I would have made other decisions and compromised, I may not be here today. And they they were just little things. But I, I look back at them now and see, you know, that was really a crossroads in my life. I remember I was working on the golf course in Norwich, Connecticut. I worked at Norwich Country Club when I was, a, when I was in my early teens and through my mid-teens. And, and uh, I was working in the clubhouse and I was caddying there and so forth and carrying bags, golf bags. And, and I was probably 16 when this particular story that I'm going to tell you happened. And I'd work in the morning, make a quite a bit of money and run down, grab a bite to eat at a little restaurant, and then go back and work in the afternoon. On this particular day, I was with one of my friends, and we ran down to the restaurant, ate a meal, and I will not tell you what we ate. I wasn't an Adventist Christian at that time, and it was not something that um, I could even smell today. But anyway, um, I went down and ate that stuff, and, uh, you know, I thought it tasted pretty good, and the restaurant was absolutely packed, and my friend elbowed me, and he said, hey, Mark, This place is so packed, we can walk out and we did not even have to pay. It's really simple. He said, just follow me. So he got up and walked out and I got up and walked out. Went back to work at the golf course. And at this point, I had just begun to study the Bible. I was just becoming a Christian. And all afternoon, this little voice in me, you did wrong. You did wrong. You did wrong. You got to go back there. And I mean, I was even hardly half a committed Christian at the time, but that conviction became so strong upon me that I could not possibly deny it. Got through my work that afternoon, went back to the restaurant, came into the restaurant, took out my four or five dollars, whatever it was, I don't remember, three dollars in those days, and uh, looked at the lady and said, ma'am, you know, the restaurant was kind of crowded, so I just kind of slipped out, you know? and I should have really paid, here's the money. I thought that lady was gonna faint dead away. I mean, to come back, not to know it. But I left there feeling like a burden was just rolled off my back. You know, I left there feeling, you know, just so positive. When the Holy Spirit convicts you to do something, do it. Because when you do, it's like a burden lifted off your back at that point. So how does the mind function in making decisions? First, God has given us the power of choice every person that you are studying the Bible with, every person you're witnessing to, in spite of what you can see, in spite of what they understand, the Holy Spirit is enlightening their mind to bring them knowledge. The Holy Spirit is working in their heart to bring them conviction. As you begin to share Jesus' word and Jesus' truth with them, the first thing that happens is you share the reasonableness of the decision. You have to share certain facts to help them to choose because all of intelligent decisions are based on adequate information. Secondly, you are helping them to see what God's will is in a given situation. And if they do not act, they're out of harmony with God's will. So, the will has three counselors, Mr. Reason, Mr. Conscience, and the third is Mr. Judgment. Now, Judgment says, Where where reason says, this is the rightness of the wrongness, these are the facts about the decision. Where conscience says, this is the rightness of the wrongness of the decision. Judgment says, this is the wisdom of the decision. So what judgment says is, these are the benefits of making a positive decision. These are the consequences of making a negative decision. And this is the influence you're going to have on others if you don't make it. Jesus was a master at understanding the human mind. If you want people to make positive decisions, show them the positive results of making the decision. Okay? Now let's go to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. If you want people that you're studying the Bible with, if you want people that you are sharing Christ with to make positive decisions, Show them the eternal benefits of making those positive decisions. When you look at the motivational techniques of Jesus, who understood the human mind, they are amazing. Look, for example, at John chapter 10, rather Mark, Mark chapter 10. You're looking at Mark the 10th chapter, and you're looking here starting with verse 27, 28, 29, and 30. Mark 10, we're gonna look at verse 28 to start. Are you there, Mark 10, verse 28? How did Jesus motivate? Then Peter began to say to him, see we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, assuredly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or the lands for my sake and the gospels who will not receive, what is he going to receive? A hundredfold, when? Now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus said, whatever you give up to follow me, I'm going to give you a hundred times more in return. Isn't that pretty exciting? Suppose I'm appealing to somebody to be baptized. How would my appeal be? I'm sitting across the table and I say, you know, John, John, if you make a decision to be baptized, You know, I just have to be honest with you. Your wife may leave you. You know, I just got to be honest with you. You may lose your job because you can't work on Sabbath. You know, John, if you be baptized, you may lose all your friends. You're not going to be able to go drinking anymore. And, John, if you're baptized, you know, you may not be able to make those payments on your car. You may lose it, too. So you may lose your job, your wife, your friends, your family, and everything else. But I'd like you, you know, to plan for baptism this coming Sabbath. Was that a good appeal? Why not? Why not? But were some of the things I said, may they might happen? But what was my problem? Who was already impressing his mind that he might lose his job? Who was already impressing his mind that with all this negative stuff? So when I'm making the appeal, the devil is reinforcing all the negative stuff, right? So if I emphasize the negative stuff, who am I cooperating with? You're saying, Pastor, Philly's cooperating with the devil? Well, look, isn't that right, though? If I emphasize all that negative stuff, so what do I say to him? I say, John, you know, there may be some real trials when you make a decision to follow Jesus, and I would not deny that reality. But I would assure you of what Jesus said. Jesus said, there's nobody who's left house, brothers, father, mother, sister for my sake, or for the gospels, that won't receive 100 times more. You know, whatever you give up to follow Jesus, he's going to give you 100 times more peace. He's going to give you 100 times more joy. You may lose some friends, but he's going to bring new friends into your life. You may actually lose a job, but God says, I'll not leave you or forsake you. He'll protect you and be with you. So what I can say to you is this, from the testimony of hundreds, thousands of other people, that whatever you give up, you're going to get so much more in return that it's not going to make much difference what you've given up. You see, so Jesus motivated positively, positively. Now, here's a psychological principle that we call Minimax. Minimax. What's the name of the principle, everybody? Minimax. Minimax. Where does it come from? Where does it come from? You got it. Minimum and maximum. Here's what Minimax says. People tend to act when the liabilities of the action are low and the benefits of the action are high. People tend to act... When the, when the liabilities of the action are low and the benefits of the action are high. Help me to understand and give me one or two word benefits and give me the text that goes with the benefit to follow Christ, okay? You're giving me a one word benefit and the text that goes with it. Let's go, I need 10 benefits quick. This side. This side. Okay, benefits to follow Christ, yes? Peace I leave with you, my peace I give it, where do you find it? What chapter? Like 14? You're good. What verse? You should. (laughs) Around 27. Okay. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. That's a benefit of following Jesus. This side. Eternal life. Where do you find it? Oh, I knew you'd know that one. Okay, great. Okay. Eternal life. You're writing these down now, quick. Okay. Peace. Eternal life. What are the benefits to follow Jesus? The joy of the Lord. The what? The joy of the Lord. What does that mean? Into the joy of the Lord. Oh, enter into the joy of the Lord. Where do you find it? The Bible. <laughs> <laughs> Good girl. <laughs> Old or New Testament? <laughs> Both. Old Testament, Psalm 16, verse 11, that give, show him the path of life in thy presence, is fullness of joy. New Testament, John 10, verse 10, I've come that they might have life, have it more abundantly. Okay, that was good, young lady. Okay, now, uh, that's three benefits. Next one, yes. I go, you, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again. You're in the right, you're in the right book, you're in the wrong chapter. John 14, one to three. Okay, that's four, heaven at last. Yes, that's a benefit, isn't it? What are the benefits? Good, yes, a benefit of following Jesus and confessing our sin is that peace of mind. These are benefits. Way in the back, yes. Okay, so I think your, your point is that um, that when we follow Christ, we have the promise of his eternal guidance. Give me three texts on guidance in the Bible, three texts on guidance. Okay, one at a time. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, yes, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he will do what, direct your paths, that's a, yes, another text on guidance. If any man lacks wisdom, on a mask of God, yes, okay, any other text on guidance? Psalm, oh, Psalm 32, 8, behold, I'll guide you with mine eye, right? Okay, so these are texts, what about the Isaiah text, fifty eight eleven you remember, I'll guide you continually. So when we make a commitment to Christ, one of the great benefits is that God will guide us, right? So let's apply some of these texts now. How do you apply them in a Bible study situation? Here's one thing that I want to be able to help you with. I rarely make my appeal on the doctrine that we've studied that day. The appeal typically will come on the benefit of following that doctrine, okay? So let's suppose we have studied about um, the Sabbath. We presented the facts, the person is convicted about the Sabbath, we're coming down for the appeal. It depends on who the person is. I might make a different appeal for a Catholic than I would to a Pentecostal, why? The Catholic in their mind has a real sense of wanting to do God's will. It's built into them from the fabric of their childhood. The Pentecostal is more open and wants more of the abundance of the Holy Spirit. So if I've studied clearly the facts with the Catholic and I have sensed the moving of their conscience, I may say something like this. You know, I would really, really counsel you today to follow the instructions of the Virgin Mary. You know, Mary said this. Let's go to John and see how we can follow the instructions of the Virgin Mary. Was Mary a virgin incidentally? Sure was. Did Mary give some good instruction? Sure did. John chapter two. John chapter 2, verse 5. His mother said to the servants, whatever he, Jesus, says to you, do it. (laughs) Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So I would follow the counsel of the Virgin Mary. Whatever Jesus says to you, do it. Is she a trustworthy source? Sure is. What do I know? we've presented we know that we want to help that loving catholic person make a positive choice right we presented the facts didn't we about the sabbath we see that they're convicted now what we must do what must we do work in harmony with the way their mind works to help them see a benefit of following truth and that benefit is pleasing jesus and doing what the virgin mary says see So, there can be different appeals. Let's suppose I'm talking to a Pentecostal about the Sabbath. Do I say to the Pentecostal, look, Mr. Pentecostal, why don't you become an Adventist and be as cold as the rest of us and leave all that tongue speaking behind? Is that how I appeal to a Pentecostal? When I come to the end of the Sabbath, now, usually, I try if I'm working with a Pentecostal, not to deal with the gift of tongues in the Bible study process before I have helped them to make a positive decision on the Sabbath. Why? I have never seen a Pentecostal give up tongues and without having first be anchored on the Sabbath. If you are able to anchor them on testing truths, then you can deal with tongues later. So when they ask me about tongues early, I say, look, we're going to talk about the fullness of the Holy Spirit later. But let's suppose I'm studying with a Pentecostal about the Sabbath. Here's be my appeal. We've done the facts of the Sabbath. We've looked they're feeling convicted. They've been coming a few a little bit. But but the Adventist church isn't quite what they experienced in their Pentecostal church. And so you know they're struggling a little bit. So I, here's my appeal to them. I say something like this to them look. I know that you really long to be filled with the Holy Spirit, don't you? And I want to share with you what the Bible says about the fullness of the Holy Spirit how to be filled with the Spirit far beyond what you could imagine. Do you think God might have an experience for you even far greater than tongues? Do you think God might have an experience of infilling of the Holy Spirit that you can't yet imagine? Let me share with you two Bible texts about the infilling of the Holy Spirit that I, that I think, um, as you begin to understand, will fi- you will be more filled with the Holy Spirit than you can imagine. John chapter 14, let's read verse 15 and 16. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. That's the Holy Spirit, and he'll abide with you forever. So here Jesus said, if you love me and you keep my commandments, I'm going to be praying for you before the Father for the infilling of the Holy Spirit on your life. So as you keep the Sabbath, Jesus himself is praying for you for the infilling of the Holy Spirit on your life. Let's go to Acts chapter. We're going to the book of Acts. We're looking at Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. We're looking there at Acts 5 verse 31. It says, him, that's Jesus, God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom, rest of the text, let's read it together. God has given to those who obey him. To whom does God give the Holy Spirit to the fullness to? To those that do what? To obey. Mr. Pentecostal, would you like the infilling of the Holy Spirit far beyond what you can imagine? As you keep Sabbath every week and you follow what Jesus says in his word, he will give you the infilling of the Holy Spirit in ways you could never, ever dream about. God is calling you to be a mighty soul winner. As you go out and share the Word of God with others and as you develop relationships that are kind and loving, as you meet the needs of other people, as you share with them the Word of God, the seed of the Word planted in the soil of the mind is going to change their lives. As you do the very best you can, don't wait to be a soul winning expert. People have said to me, Pastor Finley, where did you learn? the Bible and to memorize it? By giving Bible studies. Where else did you learn? By giving Bible studies. Where else did you learn? By giving Bible studies. I began be giving Bible studies before I knew the difference between palms and psalms. I began giving Bible studies when I thought David was in the lion's den. I was a young, there, some of you didn't get it, but that's okay. <laughs> I remember the first time I ever gave Bible studies to two Mormon missionaries. And they tied me all up on the eight first day texts. I didn't know where they were. And I had to go home and study them. I remember the first Bible study I ever gave to Mae Gibbon in South Lancaster, Massachusetts. A single mother in a little apartment And she asked me all kinds of questions and I didn't know anything about them but I needed to study the Bible with somebody. My theology professor told me to graduate from college with a theology degree and I had only been an Adventist for a few years. And I went and studied with her and I was so embarrassed I could hardly find. I didn't know where Joel was or Hosea was. And Somebody said, turn to the book of Hezekiah and it took me 20 minutes to find out it wasn't even in the Bible. (laughs) I didn't know any of that. And I studied with that lady. And she never became an Adventist. And I said, oh my, the Lord let me study with somebody he knew wouldn't become an Adventist because he didn't want me to spoil a good one. (laughs) Ten years later, I was holding an evangelistic meeting at Atlantic Union College in the gym. A thousand people were coming. I was back as the conference evangelist. And after the opening night, the first lady that walked up the aisle was May Gibbons and she looked at me and with this serious look on her face said, boy, Pastor Mark, have you changed in 10 years? (laughs) I thought to myself, I hope so, lady. And she said, I always remembered your Bible studies and I saw your picture on a handbill, and I wanted to come to your meetings and she was the first one we baptized in that series. So, So just go out and do something for Jesus. Just go out and do something. It may be not perfect. You may make mistakes, but just do it, and the Lord will take what you do. The Lord blesses what you do, not what you hope to do or think you might do. Go from here and do something for Jesus, and he'll bless it. Now, Don, I waxed eloquent for a while, so you've got to come up here. I've got to interview you for a minute before we let this group of saints go.
0: What do you do? What do you do? What do I do? I'm, I'm the director of an evangelism school called Health and what Pastor Mark was talking about was just get out there and do something. Sometimes the most important thing you can do with people is very simple things. In our school, we teach people how to cook, how to rub people's backs, and how to do natural remedies. <laughs> and right. it's amazing the conviction that comes over them. So the health message basically is an idea of convicting of what's wrong in your life and then of showing what's right and that it matters. And what happens in, in health is exactly what he's been talking about biblically. It's just very natural. People understand that they have a problem. They come to uh, you know, one of our seminars, our students help them, they've been learn- learning how to help them, and they recognize that that prophecy that was made concerning them, just like Daniel said, 10 days later I'll be better, the prophecy comes true, confidence increases, they're convicted of what's right and what's wrong, that's always the Holy Spirit working, and as a result they say, how can I know about- more about your church? How can I join your church? Happens time and again, it's a four month program. Where's your school? It's in at Weimar College in the surrounding area. And how many students do you have at a time? How many students do we have at a time? Well, we've had 20 in each class so far. We can take up to 40 in a class. So when are come? Not all of you can come. Yeah. But when is can.
1: when is your next class beginning?
0: January 17, and it goes for four months, and the next one is August through December. We do that two times a year. We also have training for professionals that's a little bit shorter. You can come to our booth. It's called the Health Program. It's at the Weimar booth, and I'll give you a free book. Uh, now, but
1: the thing is, I don't want to have to go all the way down to your booth. Can we? Can some of these people see you right after, right here? Are you Are
0: going to stand up, raise up your hand? I will be by the... Exit sign, named after Exodus.
1: Okay, okay. So if you're interested in a training in medical missionary work, Weimar College, they blend health and Bible. Excellent, excellent training. I know that there are some young people coming here. You're not sure what you're going to do in the next uh, few weeks, the next few months. That may be God's assignment for you and I really will uh, encourage you to look up one of these uh, supporting ministry schools, a school like AVCO, a school like NETS, a school like uh, at Weimar with Global Health. How many of you, when you leave here, are gonna say, Jesus, I'm gonna pray about a specific assignment. I want this seminar to make a difference in my life. I wanna do something significant for you. Would you say that for Jesus? Let's stand and pray. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for young people and adults that are consecrated to you, that want to serve you and follow you and want to live for you. Lord, help us to apply the things we've learned. We're not uh, always confident. Sometimes our knees are knocking. Sometimes we are uh, nervous, anxious. But Lord, we know that we won't get over that anxiety by doing nothing. That the more we do something, the more we have confidence in your ability to do it through us. So, Lord, whatever it is you want us to do, whatever task you have for us to perform, whatever area of witness, we want to be guided by your Holy Spirit to do that very thing. So we leave this place with the confidence that not more surely is there a place prepared for us in the heavenly mansions than there's a special place prepared on earth. And we, Lord, long to go out and participate for you in heaven's divine assignment in Christ's name. Thank you so much for coming. God bless you as you go.
0: This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.